Again, today is Good Friday, the day that we set aside to remember the death of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This horrific event took place almost 2,000 years ago, around 33 A.D. A.D. means Anno Domine, which is Latin for the year of our Lord. And of course, as Christians, we understand that every year is the year of our Lord and every day is the day of our Lord. We remember Christ's crucifixion every day, or at least we ought to. We remember Christ's crucifixion because this was part of the most pivotal event that has taken place in the history of the universe. We remember the, his crucifixion because it was part of the most pivotal event that purchased our pardon. And although this event took place in a specific moment in time on that Passover Friday 2,000 years ago, it was the continuation of something that had begun much earlier, before creation, before time. In eternity past, in a mutual agreement between the Father and the Son to redeem the elect. Theologians refer to this agreement by the Latin phrase, going to be a bit of Latin here this morning, pactum salutis, the covenant of redemption. This plan was laid down in eternity past, but for the first time, we see it laid out in scriptures in the verse that, that, that we looked at this morning, that we have looked at repeatedly in our own studies of Genesis. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now this verse, Genesis 3.15, continuing our Latin theme, is called the Proto-Evangelium. The Proto-Evangelium. This is the, the, the first gospel. That's what that means, the first gospel. And this is, so this is the first good news, and it takes place in the context of a curse. Again, Proto-Evangelium simply means first gospel. It is the first good news. Right there, as the man and the woman and the serpent are being cursed for their sin. It is the first good news because it is the promise of the covenant of grace. The promise of the redemption that is coming through the new covenant in Christ's blood. The promise that is amplified and intensified as we move towards the crucifixion of Christ. So this is the war between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. But notice that it, it's, it's, a promise of, it's a promise of war. It's a promise of war. So, so the question that comes is, is, how does the promise of war between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman promise peace with God? Well, first we have to briefly review the context in which this promise is made. The context of this first gospel is the first sin. The Lord clearly commanded Adam in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the garden, sorry, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is known as the covenant of works, obey and live, disobey and die. 
And at this moment in time, all is, is peace and harmony in the garden as the Lord provides Adam with a wife, Eve. But in chapter 3, enter the serpent. Satan comes in the form of an animal. He tempts Eve. He uses tactics that he's still using to this day. He questions God's word. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So he's questioning God's word, but notice that in doing so, he's also adding to or, or twisting God's word. He does this to this day. God did not say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden, but that you may eat of every tree in the garden except one. Satan is twisting God's words. And so here, Eve is beginning to nibble at the bait. She replies, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now Eve is adding to the word of God. God has just said don't eat it. He's never said don't touch it. But then the serpent flat out denies God's word. He says, you shall not surely die. It's an outright assault on God's word. And then the serpent test, uh, questions God's character. For God knows that when you, when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He's suggesting that God is not providing what's best for Adam and Eve. That he's, he's not good and gracious, but, but egotistical and selfish. And this plants the seed of pride in Eve's heart. Friends, look for Satan's tactics. Look for these tactics in the messages that the world is proclaiming today. Questioning God's word, twisting God's word, adding to God's word, denying God's word. And then notice another tactic that, that Satan uses through the messages of the world. Throwing in a bit of truth to make the lie a little bit more believable. In Satan's denial of God's word, there, there is an element of truth. You will not die. Your eyes will not be open. You're, you will gain knowledge. Now, these things are, in a sense, true. Partially true. But it's a lie. It's a lie. And the result of that lie is going to have a horrific cost. You know what happens next. Eve took. She ate. She gave to her husband, and he ate. The man and the woman were unified in their sin, but in their sin they created disunity with God. They declared war on God and brought sin into every human relationship. Every time a child disobeys his parents, every argument between a husband and a wife, every racial conflict, every fist fight, every war, every wickedness of the entire human race can be traced back to this first sin. And it is all rebellion against God. It is all high treason. It is the highest treason when we look at this sin we we're falling far short of what God's word would call us to do if we look at the sin and say it's out there it's in them the reality is I have seen evil and it is us we're all indicted we're all guilty 
Yes, we inherited that sin nature from our first parents, but, but in our sin nature, we chose sin every single day. We continued to participate in that rebellion against the Most High God. Friends, this is the context for the proto-evangelium. This is the bad news that creates the need for the good news. Adam and Eve tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. Right impulse, wrong direction. They knew they were guilty, but they retreated further into guilt. This was self-righteousness, which is another form of rebellion. People have been foolishly and self-righteously trying to cover themselves ever since. No, they might not use fig leaves, but they use their works. Anything external, good deeds, going to church, giving, getting baptized. All these things are external things. They are, they are not our righteousness. We, those who, who do them as Christians do them because they've been declared righteous. Self-righteousness is rebellion. Adam and Eve heard something in the garden. Something that previous to this moment would have brought joy, but now brings terror. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Again, they tried to hide. The, the Lord spoke to the man who then gives a lame excuse and tries to, to blame shift and, and cast aspersions on the woman and really, at least indirectly, blaming God because he gave him the woman. The woman tries to blame the serpent, but the reality is they're all guilty. And they're all about to face the Lord's judgment. The Lord begins with the serpent. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, but you shall bruise his heel. Again, this is the proto-evangelium, the first promise of the gospel. In Genesis 3, the, the Lord cursed the woman with pain in childbirth the, and rebellion against her husband and oppression by her husband. The Lord cursed the man with, with painful labor and with physical death. And, he, and God expels the man and the woman from the garden and from access to the tree of life. So in that sense, they were cut off from life. In that moment, they began to die. Yes, it would take many, many years. But from that moment on, they were dying. And every child who was born, even conceived at that moment, begins to die. Do, do you realize that? You look at that cute little baby. That baby is under the curse and is dying, is cut off from the tree of life. This is the lot of every human being. What follows in the scriptures is a trail of bloodshed that leads to the cross. The serpent and Eve were allied, allied together against the Lord God, and now they will be at war. The offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent will be in a state of continual conflict. The offspring of the serpent, of Satan, 
refers to, to those who are, who are on his side in the conflict. And we're not just talking about Satanists, but, but those who, who throughout history will not believe in God. Every unbeliever throughout history is on the side of Satan. The offspring of the woman, on the other hand, refers to the children of promise, the elect who are chosen by God. But after the fall, no one is born on God's side. We are all born as offspring of the devil. Again, think of that cute little baby. I think of my daughter. She is born a rebel against God. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Romans 5.12 You need to be born again by God's grace in order to join God's side. John 3.3 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So there is war. War between the offspring of Satan and war between the offspring of the woman. The battle lines have been drawn. The offspring of the devil and the offspring of the woman continue to be at war. This warfare continues through the book of Genesis. This warfare continues through the whole Bible until Satan is defeated. It will continue through all of history until Satan is defeated. The war continues in Genesis as Cain kills Abel, Genesis 4. The war continues as the descendants of Adam all die uh, apart from one in Genesis 5. The war continues as every intention of the thoughts of man's heart are evil only in, are intentionally evil. Only evil. Genesis 6, 5. The war continues as God floods the earth in Genesis 7 through 9. The war continues as Canaan dishonors his, his father Noah in Genesis 9, 22. The war continues as man builds the Tower of Babel to make a name for himself and to, in order to keep himself from being dispersed against God's command in Genesis 11. The war continues in, in Sarah and Hagar and Sodom and Gomorrah and Ishmael and Isaac and Jacob and Esau and Joseph and his brothers, though Joseph's brothers will be on the right side by the end of Genesis. The war continues in Exodus as the children of, of Israel are enslaved in Egypt and as God lays waste to Egypt in order to deliver them. The war continues as Joshua and Israel besiege the cities of Canaan. The war continues in Judges as people continue to do horrific things as they do what is right in their own eyes. The war continues as Saul fights for God but eventually fights against God and against David, God's anointed. The war continues in the wicked kings of Israel and Judah. The war continues in the Assyrian invasion of Israel, the Babylonian invasion of Israel. And this takes us to the end of the Old Testament record. But the war continues. The war continues in the, the Hellenistic invasion of Israel. The Ptolemaic and the Seleucid invasions of Israel. And the Roman invasion of Israel. But in the midst of all of that war, we have the promise of peace. The promise of peace that follows from the Proto-Evangelium, from the first gospel. 
before God expels Adam and Eve from the garden, he kills an animal in order to cover them with skins. This is the first animal sacrifice. This is the second gospel, so to speak. But it's also the first death. Abel sacrifices the firstborn of his flock as an offering to the Lord in Genesis 4. God makes a covenant with Noah in Genesis 8 and 9 as Noah sacrifices some of every clean animal and bird and offers them on an altar as a burnt offering. God makes a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15 telling him to sacrifice a, a heifer and a female goat and a ram and a turtle dove and a pigeon. And then God walks alone through the middle of those carcasses while Abraham sleeps. And God is there demonstrating that he will uphold both sides of the covenant. God makes a covenant with Moses in Exodus 20 and following, providing him with the Ten Commandments and establishing the priestly sacrifices. God makes a covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7, promising to build him a house and to give him an offspring and to establish his throne forever. These are all promises of the covenant of grace, promises of the gospel that begin back in Genesis 3 15. There's hope all the way through the Old Testament. The Old Testament saints believed in something that would come. Someone who would come. They didn't understand with the same vision, the same understanding that we have near living after the cross. But they had the same hope as we have. They believed the same gospel as we do. Paragraph 8.6 of the 1689 Baptist Confession says, Although the price of redemption was not actually paid by Christ until after his incarnation, yet the virtue, efficacy, and benefit thereof were communicated to the elect in all ages. Benjamin Keach, one of the signatories of the 1689 Confession, summarized it like this. He says, All believers who lived under the Old Testament were saved by the covenant of grace which Christ was to establish. One covenant of grace, this new covenant in Christ's blood that, that continues there all the way through the Old Testament. Is it, it's amplified, it's intensified to the coming of Christ to this event that we remember today, and I trust by God's grace every day. This takes us to the beginning of the New Testament record, to the record of Jesus Christ testified in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each Gospel account tells us from the individual perspective of each one of these inspired godly men tells us all about the life and ministry of Jesus how throughout his life he demonstrated who he was by performing miracles, changing water into wine, healing the sick, the lame, and the blind by raising the dead to life. And he who throughout his life perfectly obeyed the commandment that sums up the moral law of God to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. He did it perfectly, but he is the only one in all of history who's ever done it even for a moment. But all of the events of Jesus' life hurtled inexorably, calculatedly toward the, the events of that Good Friday. For this is ultimately why he came. 
Please turn your Bible to Luke chapter 22. Track with me as we follow the events of that day. So you know, after the Lord's Supper, our Lord went to the Garden of Gethsemane as he was often to do. And it was here where he was arrested. He was betrayed by one of his own disciples. He was denied by another of his disciples. He was handed over into, put into the hands of, of sinful men. He was mocked. He was beaten. The down in verse 66, sorry, in verse 23, we, we see him brought before the chief priests and the scribes to Pilate. Now the Jews hated Pilate. Remember, Pilate had brought brought pagan worship into the temple and there was a riot that ensued that, that caused the deaths of many in Jerusalem. The Jews hated Pilate. They were at war with Pilate. But they hated Jesus more. He's brought before Pilate and, and he, is, he is questioned by Pilate. Look at verse 66. Where he says, oh, if I tell you, the, the council here is asking, he says, he says, tell us, are you the Christ? And he says, if I tell you, you will not believe. But he says to them, but from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they ask, are you then the Son of God? And they, he said to them, you say that I am. And so this, in their mind, was a damning testimony. But it was a damning testimony against themselves. So in the beginning of chapter 23, they, they bring him to Pilate. And so Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And again, Jesus says, you have said so. These men, by their own testimony, are declaring who he is. And their words will be part of their judgment on that last day. But Pilate said, I find no guilt in this man. But they were, they were urgent. This is the Jews saying he stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea and Galilee, even to this place. Think about this. This was the, uh, the oppressive Roman governor. The Jews who had been brought up hating the Romans. As the, as the ones who, who controlled them and, and who, who tried to dismantle their religion. But here they're on the same side in this war against God. But then Pilate now sends Jesus to Herod. Now Pilate hated Herod. But they were united in their hatred of Jesus. They had been at war with each other, but together they were at war with God. And then we're told in the scriptures that, that Herod and Pilate became friends from that day. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate. And there was a custom on that day where, where the... Where the, where the, the prefect would release a prisoner hoping that 
that they would, that they would want Jesus to be released. But they all cried out together, the Jews, saying, Away with this man, release to us Barabbas. And Barabbas, we're told in the scripture, had been thrown into prison for insurrection. It had started in the city and for murder. Barabbas was a, was a murderer. But the people hated Jesus more. The battle lines have been drawn up. This is the moment which all of history pointed to this moment when our Lord and Savior would be handed over to the Romans by the religious leaders of the day. And a soldier who was trained to cleave flesh from bone with his whip that was embedded with, with pieces of, of glass and bone and metal. He flogged Jesus mercilessly, ripping his back to shreds. They forced Jesus to, to carry the crossbeam through the city streets while the people lined the streets and jeered and mocked and spit at him. And they dragged him outside the city walls where, where the, the refuse would be thrown. And there they put nine inch long spikes through his wrists and his ankles and they hoisted him up on that Roman cross. Now, if you know anything about crucifixion, it's considered to be one of the most horrific ways that somebody can be killed. As, you, as you're hanging there on the cross, in order for you to be able to breathe, you have to, to put weight on those spikes that your body is hanging from. And normally the victim of crucifixion would, would die over the course of days as their, their strength would grow weaker and weaker, as their, their, their life would slowly ebb out. But as painful as that was, this was not the most horrific part of the crucifixion. For in that crucifixion, Jesus Christ, the sinless Lamb of God, became the sin bearer. He who knew no sin took on sin, your sin, my sin, all of the vile things that we have done, even our very nature, was put on Christ. The sinless Lamb of God. But it gets worse. For in that moment, the Father poured out His just and holy wrath on His Son instead of you, instead of me. In that moment that our Lord and Savior cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, our Lord and Savior, felt 
the wrath of God. He felt separation from God, something that he had never experienced in all of eternity. And not because of his sin, because of your sin, because of my sin. On that cross, he was not thinking of the nameless, faceless mass of humanity. He was dying for his bride. He was dying for his elect. He was dying for you. He was dying for me. The world had declared war on God. And God declared war on his own son for you and me. God hates sin, but he loves you more. And so his plan from eternity past was to make peace. We're going to talk more about this on Sunday. Wicked men did this. Wicked men were responsible for the crucifixion. But this was God's plan from eternity past. It's only in this crucifixion that, that all of God's attributes would be most powerfully and plainly declared. So in this war between the children of the devil and the children of the woman, we see Satan defeated. The seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, would indeed have his heel bruised, literally as that spike went through his heel. But he would bruise or crush the serpent's head. Paul tells us in no uncertain terms who the serpent is and who the Savior is in Romans 16.20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. On the cross, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing, them, triumphing over them in him. Colossians 2.15 So Satan's triumph in the garden was not final victory. There is grace in the consequences, but not for him and not for his seed. Turn with me in your, in your Bible, please, to, to uh, Psalms chapter 2. Psalms 2, and Vince is going to be teaching on this here in a few weeks. But notice in Psalms 2 verse 1, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Again, don't look at that as those people out there. Apart from God's grace, that was you. It was me. But verse 4, He who sits in the heavens laughs and holds them in derision. He will speak to them in his wrath. He will terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The war continues. It continues after the cross. Satan has been defeated at the cross. 
But like when you cut the head off a snake, it still writhes around in the dirt. There is still war being waged. Every war, every act of rebellion you still see, but in every disharmony you see between people and between people and God is the continuation of that war. And it will continue until the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Satan and his offspring have already been defeated. The battle lines are, are continually drawn up. We're, we're now, the people are positioning themselves to see who's going to be on the right side of history. And if you're on the wrong side of, of identity politics, if you're on the wrong side of the moral revolution, they say you are on the wrong side of history. But I say, whose side are you on? Are you part of the seed of the serpent or part of the seed of the woman? There is only one just judge and he reigns and he will reign until he has put all things under his feet. As we remember the death of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we remember that Jesus died not as a helpless victim, but as a conquering king. He had the power to lay down his life. He had the power to take it up again. We'll remember and celebrate these things on Sunday. And again, we remember his resurrection every day as we should, re re as we should remember his crucifixion every day. As we anticipate the return of our conquering king. Let's pray together. Oh, glorious God. Only you could come up with a, a plan so glorious that all of your attributes would be plainly in sight. Lord, your righteousness, your holiness, your justice, your wrath, but also your love, your mercy, your grace, your wisdom, all under your sovereign power and plan made before the beginning of time to save your people, your elect, through your sovereign grace. And Lord, we for, for whom believe in the substitutionary death of our Lord and Savior, we have turned from our sin and put our faith in you and in your sacrifice. Lord, we rejoice and ask that you would help us to walk in the newness of life that you have granted us. We ask this in your precious name. Amen.